Welcome to the World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the challenges we face, the impacts they are having on society, and what we can do to help solve them. My name is Julie Weldon, and in this episode, we'll be looking at the topic of our divided society. We will talk about recent trends of polarisation and division in society, current debates on culture wars, and whether the generation gap is really as wide as many believe. Looking at the UK, we'll also consider whether the referendum on leaving the EU started or fuelled divisions in British society, and what the so-called collapse of the Red Wall in the last general election tells us about old and new political divisions. Exploring these topics will be Professor Bobby Duffy, Paula Surridge and Dr Jack Brown, all academics who work within the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy here at King's. So let's start by looking at the issue of generational divides. There's a real sense that we've got a particularly different generation of young people now, a snowflake generation or a generation of cultural warriors compared to previous generations. That's Professor Bobby Duffy, director of the Policy Institute. For his new book, Generations, he looked at data from countries around the world to assess the impact of when people are born, how much this shapes who each of us is, and whether some of the current portrayals of the different generations hold true. Hidden among all these terrible stereotypes, cliches and myths, there are really important trends where people have had very different life experiences just as a result of being born at different periods. And you can kind of understand that. And you can see, you know, there's very big examples of the utterly different economic outcomes for millennials than they could have expected if they'd been born just at a slightly different time in terms of home ownership, wage stagnation, all of those types of things is utterly to do with being born just in a different period. There is a bigger effect on people in those crucial teen and early adult years when you were socialised and you're, you're more malleable. But what happens during those periods that have been shown to be more important in shaping worldviews and behaviours for people? So they are powerful effects, but they're only one of three. Uh, and the other effects are life cycle effects or age effects where People change as they age and they go through particular life stages of leaving home, getting a job, getting married, having kids. Those are all very powerful effects too. And they pull us into line in a kind of repeated pattern that you see people changing in predictable ways as they go through those sorts of life stages. And then the third one is period effects of something happens. We have these massive shocks or even small changes that happen consistently over time, pandemics, economic crises, or just the grind of general cultural change. And that's very powerful too, as we, we're living through with a pandemic. Um, those types of major events are bound to have an effect on people, all people, not just uh, depending on when you're born. And the real job is to try to separate those out. And a lot of the myths and stereotypes come from mixing up age and cohort effects, where Lots of things that are ascribed to millennials or Gen Z as a generation are just a feature of being young and they grow out of those. So lots of exaggerated differences in generations are due to mixing up 
these effects where lots of claims say that millennials or and then Gen Z are the most materialistic generation ever are more to do with measuring their attitudes when they're young, when every generation when they're young is more focused on material things, being rich or owning stuff. Uh, that's a feature of youth. It's not a feature of those generations. He said on emerging cultural trends and issues, the young will always have different views to the old. They are more malleable, more they've grown up in a different context. So they are always at the leading edge of culture change, more or less. Um, and that's normal and, and healthy for societies because it is a, a kind of demographic metabolism. It keeps us fresh. The young will always be more comfortable with cultural change. And what I find from the book is there's absolutely no evidence that the gap between young and old on current cultural issues is any bigger than the gap between young and old on previous cultural issues. But he thinks the sense of division might feel wider because of the information environment in which we all live now. It just feels more fractious because our politics, our media and our social media tend to focus on division, accentuate division, because it's built into the system that more extreme views are seen uh, more, they get more clicks or uh, more shares. And that's that's part of the system. It's incentivized to look at the extreme. So it feels worse than it, than it really is. Tension between generations, for example, is inevitable and healthy and is good for society. You know, if we didn't have these new generations coming through, that uh, humanity would be like a stagnant pond, that there would be no change. And because humans are, are just not that flexible or adaptable. So definitely that sense of demographic metabolism, where you've got new people coming through who, who are not being programmed into the old ways is very healthy and keeps us as fresh. There's always going to be disagreement and that is healthy and it moves us on, but it's implacable conflict that you're looking to avoid. One area where he thinks this exaggerated difference is having a damaging effect is on the issue of climate change. There are gaps between young and old, but they're not very large. They're like 10 percentage points. You might get 7 and 10. The youngest generation saying climate is a serious issue compared to 6 and 10 of baby boomers. These are not big gaps compared to what you would see from, from the rhetoric. And that's really dangerous and destructive because it dismisses vast swathes of the population and paints them as uncaring about climate and puts them off. While the generational gap might not be as wide as it's often presented to be, the Brexit process did very much divide and polarise society in the United Kingdom. Let's just take a listen to some of the protests held on the streets of London at the time. I asked Paula Surridge, Deputy Director of the UK in a Changing Europe, whether the binary nature of a referendum is pretty much guaranteed to divide a society. It's not the yes-no nature of the question, but whether that yes and no maps onto a divide that already exists and that people already have some, even if it's quite loose, form of identification with. So I don't think it's necessarily about a referendum and about forming it as a binary, but I think it's about what that then attaches to. So Brexit reflected a, div a divide that already existed in the British public. And in fact, it was a divide that had been becoming more salient over time. 
But I think what we then did was we we took this divide and we kind of poured petrol on it almost and really accelerated it, gave people a sense of identity that they could then become on either side of it. And so we really embedded it in a way there was already a wound there. There was already a divide there. And then after the Brexit referendum, we just kind of constantly kept scratching at it a little bit, <laughs> made it worse and worse and worse. Um, so I think that's the thing to remember that I don't think Brexit brought this into being, but it gave it a, a new life and it gave it a label, which I think was really critical. So it gave almost kind of flags for people to rally around with the values that they already held. As the country divided into leave and remain voters, it also exposed some divisions between urban and rural areas. Here's Dr Jack Brown of our School of Politics and Economics to explain more. There isn't a huge north-south pattern to the Brexit vote, to the results of the referendum, but there is really quite a strong urban-rural pattern. So London, as the biggest city by many times over in the entire UK, was really noticeable for voting Remain. And it stands out like a sore thumb because of that. Because of London's size, it's treated as a region. It's compared to other regions like the northwest or the northeast of England. But actually, within the northwest, within the northeast, there were big cities as well that voted to Remain. So the kind of the cities versus the rest thing is a big indicator of which way a place voted in the referendum in 2016. That said, London has more leave voters than the entire North East because of its size. 40% of Londoners voted to leave. And so that's a huge number in and of itself. And one of the things that we can miss out in this, this whole debate, because it's become so divisive, is that there are huge numbers of leave voters in Remain constituencies, huge numbers of Remain voters in leave constituencies. So the fact that London did vote to Remain overall is a fact. Other big cities did so as well. But that doesn't mean there aren't huge numbers of people who voted the other way in these places. It's much more kind of complex picture than it looks on the map. Alongside Brexit, another issue that dominated the UK's most recent general election was around levelling up, with so-called left-behind areas promised they would be given some of the wealth and opportunities of more affluent areas, often seen as London and the South East. However, Jack Brown thinks this kind of view of the UK fails to capture the reality. Well, I think because of London's size and the fact that it is, it stands out as the only English region that voted to remain. Uh, London has been stereotyped as a kind of bastion of remain. Uh, and this has been interwoven with other ideas about London's affluent people. The fact that politics, national politics is based here. National media is based here. Uh, these are all accidents of history, things that have happened over thousands of years. But the fact that there's so much power of varying kinds in the city that also voted to remain. I think it's played a huge role in this, this stereotype of, of London as a kind of liberal elite bastion, you know, fortress, which imposes its views on the rest of the country. Um, and this is a really quite a powerful narrative that may or may not have anything to do with the 2016 referendum. But it certainly was seen as a kind of a uh, as reinforcing that idea that London is out of touch, but also in control. And that's, that breeds a lot of resentment. What it alludes to, is an idea that places outside of London, perhaps outside of the big cities in general, but certainly outside of, of the capital, have been left behind. This is another big sort of Brexit theme, uh, 2016 referendum theme. And levelling up the country would be assisting those areas, improving those areas outside of the capital and levelling them up to 
the status, the economic status and perhaps the political power status of London. How they're going to do that this hasn't really been discussed so far. What's good about it, what I like very much about this phrase, the idea of levelling up suggests not bringing London or other affluent regions down. It suggests improving other regions um, and equalising opportunity in that way, which is a good thing. But he points out that some of the ideas about London's affluence can hide the reality of life in the capital for many of its residents. It's a city where great, great poverty and incredible affluence sit side by side. Throughout London, even in inner London, there are pockets of severe deprivation and that deprivation is made worse by the incredibly high cost of housing in the capital. And so actually, if you're going to be below the median income, um, if you are a less affluent Londoner, you're actually worse off. You have less money left in your pocket at the end of the month than you have uh, if you were living elsewhere in the country. So there's serious, serious poverty in London. In the last general election in the UK, much was made of Labour losing many of its previous constituencies and how that was a key factor in helping the Conservatives secure victory. Paula Surridge said this so-called collapse of the Red Wall reflected an ongoing trend rather than a sudden change in voting behaviour. That change, that movement away from Labour had been happening since at least 2010. And so we see it as a kind of big shock thing that happened after the 2019 election, but actually it had been happening for quite some time. And I think that's something that both parties need to grasp. I understand exactly the imagery of it, the idea of something falling. It's a very powerful metaphor. But I think it's actually quite unhelpful to use what is actually a kind of geographic shorthand to then talk about the behaviours, opinions and so on of, of people in those places because policy needs to affect people primarily. And we find people in low in low paid work, people that are struggling to pay for social care, people who are on long NHS waiting lists in all parts of the UK. It's not something that's specific to the Red Wall. Jack Brown also thinks the historic divisions between Labour and Conservative areas are perhaps not as fixed as many think. I think the, the Red Wall, idea of the Red Wall is a really, is a fascinating phenomenon that's kind of, you can see to some extent, it's, it's completely unique to Britain in one way, but it's also, there are echoes in the kind of the Rust Belt in Trump's election in America. It's kind of post-industrial areas voting the way that we don't expect them to vote. And so, therefore, they get a huge amount of attention. Actually, the Red Wall is very, very diverse, you know, and there's some quite affluent places. There's some places, it's quite a strong argument to be made that a lot of Red Wall constituencies are kind of naturally conservative voting places. They're places where people own their own homes. They're places where for quite some time they should be voting Conservative, but there's a historical legacy of of Labour and that's kind of crumbling. So they will have voted Conservative for all sorts of different reasons. Paula Surridge has carried out work looking at values in society, which has shown that while divisions exist, you cannot simply split society into two camps. Particularly since Brexit, but for for a period around that time, we've had a lot of talk about polarisation And we seem to have entered a world where everything is either or, everything is binary. And I don't think of political values in that way. I prefer to talk about fragmentation rather than polarisation. So the polarisation assumes that everybody's at one end or the other. There isn't a group in the middle. What I've been doing with my work is looking at how values on different issues, different dimensions, to, to use the academic jargon, interact with each other to form 
distinctive fragments within the electorate. Now, you will see this in lots of the polling work in terms of segmentations that people do, and, and they give their groups interesting names, I can't, disengaged traditionalists and, and such like. But I think looking at those fragments is more helpful than trying to answer an either or question. So if we take a group of voters that I've written about quite a lot and um, that's talked about quite a lot, and they're the kind of a, what academics have called cross-pressured voters. So they have a broadly left-wing outlook on economic issues. So they're broadly in favour of redistribution, state intervention, those kinds of issues. But on social issues, they tend to be more conservative with a small c. So they tend to be more likely to favour stiffer sentences, the death penalty, think that children should be obedient, and those kinds of issues. And if you think about somebody that holds those two sets of issues, there isn't a natural party home for them. So that's why we talk about them as being cross-pressured. If you try to reduce that down to an either-or argument about economics or culture, you miss the fact that the tension for them is where that is in the intersection of their two sets of values. So they want to see what they might describe as a fairer society in terms of economic justice but they're also comfortable with the reintroduction of the death penalty, stiffer sentences, possibly anti-immigration. And that doesn't fit neatly into any particular political party. There are other fragments as well that we could talk about. There's a very distinctive liberal left fragment that tend to have, were heavily pro-Remain, but tend to have environmental issues right at the top of their, of their kind of concerns. A very, very liberal set of social values. We can also talk about an interesting group that are the economically right wing, but socially liberal. But these groups, I think of them almost in a similar way to the way sociologists think about social classes. So you couldn't draw a really hard boundary around them, but as a group, they are recognisable. And I think thinking about these fragments and how they can be joined together along different for different issues is much more powerful than thinking about polarisation and also a much more accurate reflection of where we are as a society, that there are these groups that will agree on some issues, disagree on others. However, five years on from the Brexit vote, she thinks it is still having an effect. We've got this kind of hangover of Brexit still happening in that people's Brexit identities still operate as lenses through which they view the world. So we saw polling asked people what they thought was to blame for the kind of supply problems and empty shelves in shops. And you can see that those that voted remain blame Brexit primarily and those that voted leave blame COVID primarily. And I think we're going to be in that world for quite a long time where we've had these dual shocks to our society, not just to our economy, to our society more generally. And what people think is the root cause is going to be viewed to some extent through this lens, and that's going to be really difficult, I think, for us to manage. She pointed out there are other divides, though, such as people's level of education, and thinks the pandemic might create new ones, such as around the kind of jobs where people can work from home versus those where you don't have that option. The trend of fragmentation rather than polarisation was also shown in a 2019 report from the Policy Institute. Here's Bobby Duffy on its findings. And in conclusion from that first Divided Britain report was that we're not nearly as polarised on the issues 
as you might think from all the rhetoric around it. Um, it's more that we're fragmented into lots of different groups rather than two monolithic blocks facing off against each other over particular issues, like you might see in the US. However, he pointed out there is evidence of effective polarisation, which is about how people feel about themselves, their side and the other side. The division along those lines was much stronger in Britain and was mainly built around Brexit identities. In 2021, the Policy Institute also looked at the issue of culture wars, a topic found often in the media. The report revealed that most Britons think certain people might be using culture wars for their own gains. However, they also do think cultural conflict is a serious issue. We we saw in the culture wars report is that that's broadening now from Brexit identities, which are slowly weakening over time, but are being rolled into a broader cultural identity about your views of how quickly culture is changing or your concern about cultural change or how open you are to culture change. And that's increasingly important to understand in our politics. It's um, certainly not just about left-right divisions. Now, the, the importance of that axis of cultural division is increasingly prominent in the UK. But it's interesting how quickly this has come up for people. The, the, the specific use of culture wars as a term in the UK, the wholesale importation from the US of the language and concepts of culture wars is incredible, um, incredibly short period of time. So we did the media content analysis shows that in 2015, there were just 21 articles that talked about culture wars in the UK that, that as they were happening in the UK, not about the US or anywhere else, but UK-based culture wars. By 2020, there were 534 articles talking about culture wars in the UK. We've had this enormous increase in focus on it. And then it keeps evolving. So we've moved on to the use of the word woke quite quickly. Um, and we asked people about their, their knowledge of these types of terms. And uh, half of people hadn't even heard of woke when we did the survey. Uh, a quarter of people thought it was a compliment still, and a quarter thought it was an insult. So the public, while they get the culture change, is a serious issue and political correctness gone mad. And you can't say anything these days. That type of Those types of feelings are important and strong among people. The actual terms are very new to people. And, and even on the people who have heard of terms like woke, most of them have only heard it in the last six months. So this is very fluid, very new and fluid and risky. We are very different from the US in terms of our structure and culture and history. But we're importing this thinking and terms. And I think uh, one of the main purposes of the report was to give that bit of a warning that we don't really want to follow that American path um, towards uh, emphasizing, reinforcing this culture war framing for something that isn't really authentically here in the UK as yet. So we've heard that culture wars and generational divides might not be as strong as the media portrays them. But there are clear signs of fragmentation in society, some of which were exacerbated by the Brexit process in the UK. Do our experts think there is anything we can do to help create a more unified society? Jack Brown thinks greater devolution of decision-making and tax-raising powers could make a significant difference to supporting those areas that feel left behind. If you're a seaside town where nobody's really coming anymore, if you're a post-industrial town, if you're quite an affluent rural area, that's, you know, they all have such distinct needs. I think strong local leadership is, is the way to do it. I don't think you can do this from Whitehall necessarily. You know, we know what's best for you. 
tends not to be the way. He thinks current policies around levelling up also need to consider poverty, as well as place, to help decide where needs extra support. Place-based policies are important to an extent, but they shouldn't come at the uh, expense of any thinking about poor people and what they need. And particularly in the area of skills, I think this is a really big thing that we need to do. Leveling up needs to be leveling up skills and access to employment opportunities across the country because that's what gives people a lot of freedom in their lives. In addition, he wants to see a change in how we talk about regional inequalities so it's more reasonable and measured and does not fuel a sense of division. I think a lot of stereotypes and a lot of uh, myths are kind of willfully put out there. Divisive language deliberately used by politicians on both left and right, actually, about the north-south divide, about cities against the rest, about London. People say London when they mean Westminster and they say Westminster when they mean national government. Speaking in shorthand, using stereotypes is a bad thing, I think, in general, in in life uh, and, and particularly in politics. So I think a kind of stepping back from this very divisive language that came around the EU referendum would be a very good thing as well. And I think it's achievable. I think it's achievable in, in the fullness of time. It's not going to happen overnight, but I do think there's plenty of evidence that the public aren't that into the more divisive language, the culture war stuff. And so actually it might make sense <laughs> to kind of dial this down a little bit. He thinks that's something where, as individuals, we could make a difference. So I think that actually you could pressure your MP, definitely, um, if they were being unnecessarily divisive, write to them, let them know. Think about these things when you vote. But actually, just everybody, the way people talk to one another is more visible than ever before. Sort of conversations we have on social media uh, are actually, you know, everybody has a voice. And that's a wonderful thing. But actually... The tone is kind of set there. There's never been a more sort of democratic time for setting the tone of the national conversation and also get involved in politics. And if we had a slightly more devolved system of government, there'll be a need for a lot more kind of big, substantial political figures across the country. So I think there's a great opportunity there to actually get involved, whatever your political leanings. Paula Surridge thinks it's important we all realise we might be more unified than it seems and would like to see a greater focus on the centre ground of issues such as culture wars. I don't think we are as divided as we seem. So I think that a lot of attention is paid to the shouty extremes (laughs) on all issues. And that's understandable. And in some ways, in, in some senses, that's how democracy needs to function, that you have people that are really interested in some issues and and, and get really engaged. But there's a danger that we assume that we're more divided than we are because they're the groups that we hear about. Divisions aren't necessarily a bad thing. We expect to see differences within any society. So we need to think about that a little bit more and and unpack that a little bit more. But I think for me, one of our most urgent tasks as, as a society is to think about that middle ground on what have been called culture wars issues. What would an appeal to the centre on these cultural issues look like? Bobby Duffy says while there are no magic solutions, rhetoric matters. And greater control of social media and for the companies themselves to show more restraint could help the focus move on from more extreme views. But another point is that people compromise when they meet 
It's when you're actually talking to someone in the right sort of environment, face to face, or in, even in virtual environments, people are much more reasonable about the other side. So we need more of that. And that means in practical terms, it means more devolved decision making, more deliberative democracy approaches, more connections between people, more support for civil society that are connecting people. All of those kinds of hard things that take a long time, but are very worthwhile. He also suggested political leaders and the media have a part to play. But I do worry about how we are currently. Age is a really bad characteristic to divide people on. And we do have really, in the UK, we do have very big and very unusually large divisions and party support between young and old, um, with Labour support very young and Conservatives support very, very old. And that leads to a very bad dynamic where one side thinks they've got a coalition of the ascendant on their side and they've got a future demographic destiny that means they'll inevitably be in power in the future, while the other side thinks that it is motivated then to paint that side, uh, that younger side, as more extreme than it really is, to draw more of its base towards it. So you've got bad incentives on, on either side. So I think trying to look for connections across generations, of which there are many, we are very connected across generations. We our connections up and down generations and through families are much stronger than our connections um, across them. Emphasizing those connections is really, really important rather than the horrible stereotypes and cliches that we get so much of right now. A lot of the books end up with effectively an appeal to the virtue and duty of political leaders and the media not to push these uh, simple buttons to increase division. And that is important in the end. Really important to remember that we're not like the US. We have very different structures, history, culture. So we're not inevitably going to follow down a path of the US um, in Britain or other countries. And we don't have to follow that path. So I would keep some hope in this as we kept, we've one of the key points from all of the work is that we still have agency in this. He also pointed to the community cohesion, which emerged during the pandemic, especially in the first wave in the UK when 9 in 10 people supported lockdown measures and 6 in 10 offered or received support from others in their community. What it also highlighted to me was, having done lots of work on voluntary activity and community cohesion before, is you've got to remember that around 4 in 10 do that all the time in Britain. You know, it's, it's um, People are more active than we're aware of and the pandemic really showed that this was something that goes on and made it more prominent for people and increased it. But I suppose the lesson I took from that a little bit is that what we need is to support, give the infrastructure to support those types of activities, because that's what people need. It doesn't happen by accident. And one of the biggest barriers is uh, just not knowing what to do, not knowing where the opportunities are. And COVID made that much more straightforward than uh, it was much more, much clearer what you could do to help others. And that's uh, making sure that we've got the infrastructure that supports that is really important if we want to continue with that greater sense of community connection. So how should we feel about the future? Is it likely we'll see a society becoming more unified and cohesive? Jack Brown feels hopeful that some of the divisions in the UK that have surfaced in recent years will diminish in the future. I think lots of these divides are artificial, really. I think they are divides of language. They are divides of of ideas rather than actual policies. Most people want the same thing. We're not in a uniquely regionally unequal time. We're not in a time where London is more dominant than it's ever been. 
we are a much more united country than uh, our current sort of national conversation suggests. And we can go back there. I think we will. Paula Surridge thinks in many countries, the insecurity we have all felt during the COVID-19 crisis could lead to unpredictable behaviours in the future. Things are unpredictable. And I think, never mind what's happened over Brexit in the last five years and our politics over the last five years, I don't think any of us have yet grasped the enormity of the pandemic and what we've all been going through for over the last 18 months and what that's going to mean for all sorts of aspects of our lives when when we eventually return to the new normal. I don't think we can predict how people's values and priorities might emerge from this crisis because we've gone through a period where we have all felt insecure in some way or other. And what that then might do, what might emerge from that in terms of people's values and priorities, I think is just completely up in the air, even more so than it was two years ago when we were living through this. I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like politically. And so the only thing that I think I would predict if I if I was to look into a crystal ball is that I would anticipate people's priorities, public opinion, political behaviour being volatile for some time and not only in the UK but I think we might see that elsewhere as well. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. This episode was produced by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London and edited by Rachel Wall. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so it's easier for others to find out about the series.